Open your Bibles to Acts 15. Our text this morning is Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. It's Luke's account of Paul and Barnabas' decision to separate before their second missionary journey. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you asking that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts by your Spirit, that we would hear and believe and obey your Word. We ask it in the name of Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen. Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the, grace, by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome, yeah, come on up. Oh. Good to see y'all. Hey, do y'all know what multitasking is? Yeah? Yeah, you got the idea. Uh, doing, do the more than one thing at the same time, like talking on the phone while cooking or reading a book while listening to music, or riding a bike while doing your taxes. Uh, it's doing more than one thing at, at once. And I am terrible at it. And I mean, seriously, when I get home in, in the evenings, I like to help Jenny uh, with the cooking and, and cleaning. Uh, but then Jenny will ask me about my day, and so I start talking. And do you know what stops happening? I stop cooking and cleaning. I'm standing there holding a knife, talking, but not cutting carrots. Because helping around the house is a good thing, and talking to my wife is a good thing, but I can't do two good things at the same time. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the story that we just read in Acts. Up to this point, Paul and Barnabas have been doing a lot of good things together for the sake of the gospel, and they've been doing it for a long time. But here in, the, in what we just read, they disagree, and then they start working separately. What happened? Well, there was a young man whose name was John Mark, and he had made a big mistake when he had been helping Paul and Barnabas earlier. But Barnabas thought, we just need to spend some time with John Mark. We, we can help him grow as a follower of Jesus and a worker in God's kingdom. Yeah, that's a good thing to do, right? To help this young man who made a mistake. But Paul 
Paul wanted to focus his attention, his work, on the wider church. He, he wanted to help them know Jesus better and, and grow up in the gospel. Well, that's a pretty good thing too, isn't it? Right? That's a good thing for him to focus on. But Paul and Barnabas together, they could not do those two good things at the same time. They could not focus on John Mark, on developing him, and focus on growing the churches at the same time. So they separated, each going to do the good thing that they thought was best for the kingdom of God. Now, today for you and me, there are lots of different good things that we can be doing for the sake of God's kingdom. But none of us, none of us can really do two good things at the same time. We are limited by time and energy and even abilities. And so even though we might end up doing different good things, each of us, we're still going to be doing our best for God's glory. But as we do that, we're going to have to learn how to be patient with each other. Uh, Because even though someone else may choose something different than you or different than me to focus on, We have to remember they're still doing that out of love for Jesus and out of care for His kingdom. It's true that not working closely together on things, it can be a little sad. It can be a little hard. But it won't always be that way. One day, Jesus is going to come and He's going to finish the good work that He started. And His kingdom is going to come in all of its fullness. And then... The Bible says that we will always be with the Lord together. And because Jesus is king over all of us, even when we're working in different places, doing different things for now, that's another reason why we call this good news. You believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back. If you've not done so uh, already, open your Bibles to the end there of of Acts chapter 15. As Sam said, we are focusing this morning uh, on the account of uh, Paul and Barnabas separating uh, before their second uh, missionary uh, journey. Uh, And this uh, immediately follows on the heels of what was referred to as the the Jerusalem Council, which was our focus for the past uh, two Sundays. And you'll you'll remember that the, the council was convened to answer the question of whether or not a person had to be circumcised in order to be saved. There was a group known as Judaizers who apparently were following Paul and Barnabas around who who affirmed Paul's proclamation that Jesus was the Christ. They they agreed that that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-promised Savior. But they were also teaching that a man had to be circumcised in order to receive salvation in Christ. That is, a person had to become a Jew, and they had to submit to the the Mosaic law, circumcision being the the sign of that submission. They they had to submit to the law and become a Jew in order to benefit from Christ's saving work. After all, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Well, the council's response to that teaching and to the, the question concerning that teaching taught us two important lessons. 
First, we we saw that the council's unyielding opposition to a false gospel is absolutely necessary. The, the, The council was unyielding in their opposition to the false gospel of the Judaizers. And it was just that. It was a false gospel. Remember, the assertion that a person had to be circumcised in order to be saved was not merely an ethnic or a, or a cultural claim. It was that, but it was more than that. It was a gospel claim. It was the claim that Jesus saves the righteous. That Jesus saves those who have established their own righteousness through works of the law. And that claim stands in direct opposition to the authentic apostolic gospel. The the apostles taught, and, and Jesus taught, that Jesus came to save not the righteous, but sinners. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Jesus justifies the ungodly through faith, and through faith alone, apart from works of the law. And so, because the Judaizers were were teaching a false gospel, the council opposed them strenuously and absolutely. However, in a move that surprises some who, who delight in their unyielding opposition to the false gospel of the Judaizers, the council also asked the Gentiles to abstain from food offered to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. This is surprising because at least at first glance, and at least to modern readers, it it seems to undermine the council's unyielding commitment to justification by faith alone. How how can they add these things as requirements? But as Sam pointed out last week, the council was not suggesting that the Gentiles had to do these things in order to earn their salvation, but rather they were saying that, that in these ways the Gentiles can love well their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. They, they can love well by denying themselves in these areas. And so in Luke's account of the Jerusalem uh, Council, uh, we see both the importance of an unyielding commitment to the gospel and a self-denying, flexible love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. When it comes to the gospel, there can be no compromise. But in secondary matters, however, uh, Christians ought to be willing to deny themselves and surrender their rights for the sake of their brother's conscience. And this theme of responding well to differences, differences that arise within the life of the church, this, this theme of responding well to differences is going to carry over into the text before us this morning. This time, however, the the difference is not related to theology or or morality, but rather this time, the difference is related to methodology. It is a difference of opinion regarding missionary strategy. And the question is, how should such differences be handled? Of course, the the answer to this question uh, is going to be a little dependent on whether or not Paul and Barnabas handled the difference well. (laughs) What do we think of of what Paul and Barnabas actually do? Do they handle it well or do they handle it poorly? Well, we have to answer that question first. Let's look again more closely at the text. The scene opens with Paul and Barnabas, or I'm sorry, with Paul suggesting to Barnabas that they return and visit the brothers in every city where they had proclaimed the word of the Lord. 
Now, Paul's desire to do this, Paul's desire to, to return and to, to visit the churches, and, and Barnabas' implied desire to go with him on this journey, this is significant in its own right. It's not our, our focus this morning, but it's significant because it, it reveals to us the church's need for ongoing apostolic oversight. Remember, Paul had appointed elders in all of these churches. We, we saw that in Luke's account of his first missionary journey before the Jerusalem council. So these, these churches had elders, and yet, nevertheless, Paul wants to go and, and check in on them and to see how they are doing. That, that phrase of, of going to see how they were doing suggests more than just a desire to, to, to see what's going on. It is a, it is a, a phrase that suggests that they, they want to minister to them. They want to see their needs so that they can respond to them, whether that's a, a need for further instruction or correction or rebuke or, or training in righteousness. He didn't just want to know. He wasn't merely interested in information. He wanted to see how they were doing so that he could serve and shepherd them according to their need. And of course, that leads us to a question regarding our own life as a church. How does the church today receive this kind of ongoing apostolic oversight? We do not believe there are apostles actively serving in the church today. There were apostles in the first century. They were commissioned by Christ himself to deliver the faith once for all to the saints. Uh, Paul himself refers to them as the, the foundation upon which the church will be built with Christ as the, the cornerstone. But because their work was foundational, uh, that work was limited to the first generation of the church. But if there are no apostles in the church today, how does the church receive this ongoing apostolic oversight that is necessary to its health? I think you know the answer. There are no apostles in the church today, but we do have a record of the apostles' teaching. We do have a, a written record of that faith that they once for all delivered to the saints. That's what the New Testament is. And it is the scriptures that provide that ongoing oversight. Think about what Paul says to Timothy. The scriptures are profitable, he says. They're, they're profitable for what? They are profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. When we study and, and meditate upon the scriptures, when we, we hear, when we hear the word read and preached in our gathered services, we are first taught. We don't assume that we know everything just because we are Christians, even if we've been Christians for a long time. We are always learners. And just as the early church needed to continue learning, so do we. And we continue learning through the ongoing ministry of the apostolic word. But not only do we continue to learn, the scripture is also correct. We may have misunderstood something or gotten something wrong. And as we study and meditate upon the, the scriptures, we not only learn from them, but we are corrected by them, just as Paul would have corrected the early churches when he went to visit them, when he went to encourage them. And of course, they go beyond just correcting wrong ideas. The scriptures also rebuke. 
We know that, that Paul rebuked those who were living in open rebellion against the gospel that they had believed. When, when people were out of step with the gospel, when they were living out of accord with the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, Paul rebuked them. We, we see this in his letters, his letters to the Galatians and the Corinthians and, and elsewhere. And in the same way, we are rebuked and we are convicted of sin when we meditate and study upon the scriptures and hear it read and, and preached in our gathered services. And finally, the scriptures train us in righteousness. That is, they, they show us how to live out our faith faithfully. They, they show us how to live truly in accord with the gospel. They, they show us how to love God and, and love neighbor, even as we rest, up in, rest in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And because they are God's living words, that, that they not only show us how to do this, but they actually strengthen and empower us to do so. And so Paul's desire to, to revisit the churches. And, and even though he had planted elders there, his, his desire to, to go back shows us their need for ongoing apostolic oversight. And that is the exact oversight that we receive now through the ministry of that faith once for all delivered to the saints. As I said, I don't have time to, to unpack that fully this morning, but I, I, just, I just think it's a vital point. This is why the ministry of the word is at the heart of everything we do. Because the ministry of the word, the ministry of the apostolic word, the ministry of that, that word once for all delivered to the saints is the, is the mechanism by which God and Christ cares for his church and by which he, he grows us up in the faith that we have believed. I want us to notice something. Paul's desire to go is, is good. Barnabas' desire to go with him is, is good. But I want you to notice what happens when Barnabas suggests that they take John Mark with them on the proposed journey. Because this is really going to be our primary focus this morning. Luke writes, Paul thought best not to take John Mark with them. When, when Barnabas suggests taking Mark, Paul says, no. <laughs> Why? Why, why, did, why did Paul oppose this idea? Well, he tells us because Mark had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, you may remember that, that Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and he was seemingly doing fine while they were on Cyprus, a, a, a place where he was familiar, a place where he had family. But when they returned to the mainland, and when uh, the, the plan was proposed that they pass through the, uh, the Taurus Mountains, Mark left them and went home. In fact, the word that is used suggests something closer to uh, abandon. Mark abandoned them uh, when the journey became hard and dangerous. And therefore, Paul did not think it was wise to take John Mark with them again on their second journey. But Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance. And, of course, that fits perfectly with what we know about his character. He was, after all, the son of encouragement. And he did not want to give up on Mark after one failure. But on the contrary, he wanted to come alongside him in his weakness so that he might nurture him and, and, and strengthen him for ministry. And so Luke tells us that a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas and that they ended up separating. Barnabas taking Mark with him to Cyprus and Paul taking Silas to Syria and then Cilicia. 
The question is, what are we to make of this decision to separate? In my experience, uh, this story is usually used to remind us that Paul and Barnabas were sinners just like the rest of us. That is, uh, it is assumed that the, the disagreement that led to Paul and Barnabas going their separate ways was a sinful disagreement. It was the result of, of pride or self-interest or, or resentfulness or any no other number of, of character flaws. But, but it was, at, at its base, a, a sinful disagreement that led to a regretful separation. For example, Dennis Johnson, who is actually a pastor here in our uh, presbytery and who wrote a, a great commentary on the book of Acts, one that I highly recommend. He uh, titles his commentary on this section, A Traumatic Argument. And he writes this, he says, In the aftermath of fruitful ministry, we sometimes stumble over our own shortcomings. And so it was that Paul and Barnabas, having stood together to face persecution from without and opposition from within the church, having seen the joyful resolution of the controversy over the gen their Gentile converts, and having carried on further fruitful evangelism at Antioch, so bitterly disagreed that their collaboration in ministry was shattered. And Johnson reminds us that the, the gospel advances and the church grows not through our power or piety, but through the name of Jesus. Paul will occupy center stage throughout the rest of the book of Acts, but he is not to be the hero of the story. Johnson writes, the risen Lord Jesus is. Johnson then concludes, without justifying either disputant, Luke shows how the sovereign God advances his kingdom through his flawed servants. This never excuses our sins, but it does glorify God's grace. And so, so Johnson suggests that this was a, a sinful disagreement which, which reveals to us the reality that God is able to use sinful servants to accomplish his good and holy purposes. In his commentary on Acts, John Stott, another uh, renowned commentator whose, whose commentary I highly recommend, uh, he makes a similar point. He writes, God certainly overruled this melancholy disagreement, since as a result of it, out of one pair, two were made. But, Stott warns, this example of God's providence may not be used as an excuse for Christian quarreling. I suspect that you've heard similar explanations uh, and applications of this passage because, as I said, in my experience at least, the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas regarding John Mark is, is usually assumed to be a sinful disagreement. And if this is correct, then, then we are most certainly supposed to take comfort in God's ability to use significantly flawed instruments to accomplish his purposes. If he couldn't, I wouldn't have a job. If God couldn't use flawed instruments, he, he couldn't use any of us. For we are all deeply and, and seriously flawed. It is only because God is able to use sinners that any of us has the privilege of serving him and his church. But that being said, I am not convinced that Luke intends for us to see the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas as sinful. The word translated sharp certainly conveys the idea of deep emotion. 
It is the same word used to describe Paul's reaction to the idolatry which he encountered in Athens. There it is translated as provoked. Luke Luke writes that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. And so the, the disagreement was deeply emotional. But despite what some Presbyterians think, that does not mean uh, that it was sinful. And I think we might unintentionally paint ourselves into a corner when we read it that way. Ask yourself, was, was Paul wrong to think it unwise to take John Mark back onto the field without some additional training or, or mentoring? I don't think any of us would, would think that. On, on the contrary, I think almost every modern mission agency would have made the same call. If a, if a missionary abandoned his team on the field, I think it would be unwise to send him or her back into the field without some additional training. But does that mean that Barnabas was wrong for wanting to give John Mark another chance? Again, I don't think so. If we only have one chance to try something, then we are all going to be disqualified forever from everything. We're not, none of us is ever going to be able to do anything. You recently heard Sam to talk about the sermons that he, he preached when he was in Uganda immediately after graduating from college. And by his own admission, those, those sermons were not up to his current standards. <laughs> but that experience showed him that he needed further training, not that he should never preach again. And anyone who has ever been in ministry, myself included, could tell many similar stories. If I quit every time I failed, or worse, if I was disqualified by everyone else every time I failed, then there would be nothing for me to do. And so I don't think we want to say that Barnabas was wrong for wanting to give John Mark a second chance to develop his gifts as a missionary. And actually, Paul's own letters bear out the wisdom of Barnabas' approach. At the end of, of 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Do your best to come to me soon. He's writing to Timothy. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And then he adds, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And so, much later in his life, when, when Paul was abandoned by another young protege named Demas, Paul actually asks for Mark by name. He, he's no longer worried about Mark abandoning his, his post. He trusts him. He, he values him as a, as a partner in ministry, and he asks for him explicitly. And as I said, this seems to demonstrate conclusively the, the goodness of Barnabas' desire to give Mark another chance at this early stage in his ministry life. And so I don't think we want to say that Paul was wrong to think it unwise to take Mark again with them so soon. And, and I don't think we want to say that Barnabas was wrong uh, to think uh, that Mark needed another chance to develop his gifts as a missionary. But if we aren't willing to make either of those judgments, th then listen, in order to call their disagreement sinful, we must say that one or both of them was wrong to, to hold to their position without compromising. We, we must conclude that, that either one or both of them uh, should have set aside their, their primary concern 
and, and settled on some third middle way. But again, I ask, do we really want to say that? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, in fact, that's what I think, that's what I mean when I say that we, we paint ourselves into a corner when we interpret this disagreement as sinful. Now, hear me. There is no doubt that it is often good to compromise. For example, the, the committee of our presbytery responsible for planting churches is very passionate. Understatement. They are very passionate about planting churches that are committed to church planting from the beginning. They want to plant church planting churches. Churches And so, one of the ways that they uh, cultivate uh, that uh, ethos within their church plants is by asking every church plant to give a percentage of their budget to the church planting movement within the presbytery from day one. Even as they're raising money uh, for the own, their own plant, they're already giving money to other plants in the presbytery. But a couple of years ago, there was a, a new plant in an underserved community within the bounds of our presbytery that, that wanted to support church planting. They, they were actually excited about this, but, but they were finding that the requirement to, to give the designated percentage was a hindrance to them gaining traction in the community that they were trying to serve. And so what did they do? They, they compromised. They agreed on a much smaller percentage that kept the church planting movement in the plant's budget from day one, but was also a much smaller stumbling block to the, the people that they were trying to reach. It was compromise. It was, it was good, and that's just one example. There are, of course, countless examples of, of compromise being good for ministry. But, at the same time, there are times when there is no suitable middle way. It was unwise, let's just, let's just say it, it was unwise uh, to take Mark on the journey that Paul had envisioned. It would not have been good for Mark or for Paul or for anyone else uh, to take John Mark on that journey. But it was also unwise not to give Mark another opportunity to develop his gifts. And so the right thing to do was for them to separate so that both objectives could be accomplished. Yes, the, the disagreement was sharp because both Paul and Barnabas were deeply committed to their objectives. Paul was, was deeply committed to returning to the churches they had planted on their first journey to, to strengthen and to encourage them. He was passionate about that work. And Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, was passionate about mentoring his cousin, about mentoring young John Mark. And it was their deep commitment to their respective objectives that made the disagreement sharp, but not necessarily sinful. Yes, they had to separate, but, but we can read that separation as wise rather than as a failure. And I think this has implications for the church today. The church's general mission given by Jesus himself, is to make and equip mature disciples of Jesus Christ through the spirit-empowered ministry of God's word and prayer. If you've, if you've been here very long, you, you've heard us talk about it. This is our mission. This is, this is why we exist. And we believe that this is not only why we exist as a particular congregation of Christ's church, we believe this is the mission that God, and, th and through Jesus, has, has given to the church itself. 
But we must understand that there's not one right or biblical way to do this. If, if every church has this mission, it doesn't mean that every church's ministry is going to look exactly the same. Tim Keller went to New York City because he had a heart for reaching the city. And the church planting network that, that grew out of his work there focuses on planting churches in cities around the world. On the other hand, a guy like Carl Vatters, he has a heart for pastors of, of small churches and small communities, usually rural communities. And the, the network that he has developed provides support for such pastors. Now, I suppose that Keller and, and Vatters could try to find some middle way so that they could work together, maybe focus on the suburbs or something, I'm not sure. But, but I think we recognize that would not accomplish either goal. And so it's, it's good, it's good that they each do their own thing. And that's just one obvious example. We could, we could multiply examples. One person might be passionate about supporting the, the local pregnancy center. You see an insert in your bulletin today on, on this Sunday devoted to remembering the, the pro-life movement. And, and there are many who, who, who use their volunteer hours and their, 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 their money to, to support that ministry. Another person might be passionate about supporting racial reconciliation in the community. A third person might be passionate about addressing food or housing insecurities among the working poor. A fourth person might be passionate about reaching the LBGT community with the good news of the gospel. A fifth person might be passionate about providing training to, to pastors in the third world, while a sixth person is passionate about providing support to discouraged and burnout pastors here in the West. I think you could all agree that these are all good and godly passions. Furthermore, I think you would all agree that the person who is passionate about supporting uh, racial reconciliation probably won't have time uh, to volunteer at the pregnancy center. And the person who is passionate about serving pastors in the West might not have time to, to travel abroad to train pastors in the third world. Or to, or to bring it closer to home here at Trinity, the, the person who serves in the nursery might not have time to volunteer uh, for the shelter meal. And the person who, who helps with the shelter meal may not be able to teach Sunday school. And the person who teaches Sunday school may not be able to come to the church work day. And what we need to see is that this is okay. Paul had a, had a passion to, to strengthen and to encourage new churches and, and in, uh, that he had helped plant. Barnabas had a passion to, to further strengthen and encourage Mark for, for ministry, and no middle way allowed them to fully accomplish both goals, and so they separated. Paul took Silas as his new partner and set off to accomplish his objective, and Barnabas took Mark and set off to accomplish his. Seeing their separation as, um, as emotional, as, as heartfelt, but ultimately good, allows us to acknowledge that it is okay for Christians to devote themselves to some particular aspect of ministry about which they are passionate, even while other Christians devote themselves to other aspects of the same gospel ministry. Your thing doesn't have to be everyone's thing. And another person's thing doesn't have to be your thing. When we assume that, that Paul and Barnabas' separation was sinful, we put that freedom at risk. That simply isn't good for anyone. In his recent book titled You're Only Human, 
uh, Dr. Kelly Capick, a professor up at Covenant College, uh, writes about his own experience this way. He says, sitting in Sunday school, listening to a visitor explain a vibrant ministry in our county's prisons, I am deeply moved. Our time together ends with his description of opportunities to support this effort through finances, by becoming a mentor or, and uh, regularly meeting with an inmate, or by starting correspondence with an incarcerated person who would benefit from encouragement, shared wisdom, and the gift of friendship. A brown clipboard with a ruled white sheet of paper for sign-ups gets passed around. You ever been there? He writes, guilt, and maybe spirit-led conviction, begin to pierce my soul. I really should sign up. But a few weeks later, different visitors working in local housing projects tell the story of what God is doing in another part of town. Within a setting of intense crime, chronic poverty, and widespread fear, God is doing beautiful and significant things. Pockets of shalom and hope are popping up in the community. Christians living there are receiving much-needed encouragement, while others are newly experiencing the love of Christ through deed and word. And yet, the needs far outweigh the abilities of those currently living there and serving in the ministry. So explaining some of the opportunities, the leaders hand around the same clipboard, but now with a different set of sign-up sheets. Pierced again, I can see just how vital this powerful ministry is and how I should unreservedly support it, but what should I do? Not too long after that, we hold our annual missions conference, he writes. Here we learn not just about the work of those we already support, but about fresh challenges and opportunities. This year we are concentrating on India, where gospel ministry is happening among the material poor in some areas and the privileged elites in others. Prayers, people, and finances are always encouraged, needed, and welcomed. Last year we focused on neglected parts of the Muslim world, Next year, we will consider needs in Europe. How am I to respond? Then a few weeks later, an excellent ministry to those struggling with unplanned pregnancies. Some months after that, another need is presented. You can see where this is going. I think we intuitively recognize that no one person can do everything. We are only human after all. But what we need to see what we need to see more clearly is that our limits are ours according to God's design. Our limits are not a result of the fall. They are the result of our creation. And they are not undone by our redemption. This is why Paul says that the church does, does its proper work only as each member does its part. The nose must be the nose and the hand must be the hand. The nose can't be the hand and the hand can't be the nose. Nor can the hand say to the nose, the body has no need of you because you are not a hand. But on the contrary, each member must do its work. And when every member does its work, the work of the church as a whole will be accomplished. That means a few things for us this morning. It means, first, that you need to know what God works God has prepared for you to do. That you are only human means you can't do everything, but that you belong to God means you can do something. And you must know the, the good works that God has prepared for you to do. And the passions that he has given you are a good indicator of what those works might be. They're not the only indicator, don't mishear me. Uh, you, you, you aren't necessarily called to do whatever it is you're passionate about, 
But your passions are a good place to start. And if you would like help clarifying your passions and identifying the good works that God has prepared for you to do, then I would love for you to schedule time with me or with Sam or with any of the other elders. We would, we would love to, to talk with you about what it might mean for you uh, to answer God's calling in your life. But at the same time, even as you try to identify the works that God has prepared for you to do, you must also know that God has not called you to do every good work. I can remember my dad saying, not every need is a calling. And I used to struggle with that when I was young. But as I've gotten older, I've come to see the wisdom in it. We, we need to hear that. Not every need is a calling. We need to know that it's okay, actually that it's more than okay, for you to devote yourself to things that um, are, are your calling, while others devote themselves to other things that are their calling. And you must understand that devoting yourself to your good works will mean not doing other good works that are truly good. You can't do everything. And third, you must know that no one else can do everything either. You must know that it is okay if, if others do not devote themselves to your particular passion. You cannot judge your brother because they are not volunteering at the same place you are. But rather, we must recognize that as, the, as each member of the body does its part, the work of the whole church is accomplished. You see, what we have to understand is that there is no indication that this separation between Paul and Barnabas ended their friendship. As I said earlier, Paul is going, to, is going to take center stage throughout the rest of the story of the, of the book of Acts. But Paul's first letter to the Corinthians suggests that Paul continued to regard Barnabas as a partner in ministry. And we must be prepared to do likewise. We may go our separate ways in ministry, but we must never separate spiritually from our brothers and sisters in Christ because God has given them different ministry passions. And so... This is our third lesson, our third lesson in responding well to, to differences in the church. First, we saw that we must be unyielding when the difference relates to the heart of the gospel. Second, we saw that we must be flexible and self-denying when the, the differences relate to non-essentials. But now in this passage, we have seen that we must honor other members of the body when they devote themselves to pursuing their ministry passions even when your ministry passion takes you in a different direction. For as Capic says later in his book, it takes an entire community to reflect the one Messiah in the world. Only the church as a whole can be the body of Christ because no one person can be or do everything. And because God has made us and because God has redeemed us to be members of just such a community, because he has redeemed us to be members of his body doing his good works in the world. That is one reason that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We, we thank you that, that you have prepared good works for us to do. And we pray now, Father, that you would prepare and equip us to do those good works to the praise of your glorious grace, and that together as a whole, as your church, we would do all the good works, Father, that you have, have given us to do, uh, and that your name might be praised even to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.